Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. From Dobbs and abortion to Coach Kennedy. and religious freedom, the Supreme Court has made some monumental decisions in this last session. And with the Supreme Court back in session and a new justice on the court and the legitimacy of the court itself being questioned, we're going to talk today to a real expert, Senator Mike Lee, to help us understand what we should make of all of this. Hello, everyone. Ben Carson here with another episode of Common Sense. And I'd like to welcome our distinguished guest, Senator Mike Lee from Utah. He was elected in 2010 as the 16th Senator from Utah. And it's a very interesting uh, connection to the court. You see, his father, Rex Lee, was Solicitor General under Ronald Reagan. And uh, when he was making all those arguments before the Supreme Court, guess who got to come and listen? That's right. Senator Lee, when he was still a youngster, went to all the court hearings. His parents actually excused him from school. And uh, he really got an inside look at what was going on. He also clerked for Samuel Alito uh, when he was on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit and again on the Supreme Court. And uh, he's a constitutional expert. His recent book called Saving Nine, The Fight Against the Left's Audacious Plan to Pack the Supreme Court and Destroy American Liberty is a national bestseller. So welcome, Senator. And uh, I'll tell you, your book could not be more timely. I'm just wondering, what does the Constitution say about the court, and, and why did the founder design things that way? Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Dr. Carson. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. The Constitution itself speaks of the Supreme Court, speaks of the fact that we uh, must have a Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress uh, may uh, choose to establish. It tells us very little uh, very little else about the Supreme Court other than to say that it's there to resolve cases and controversies. In other words, uh, the, the purpose of the federal courts and of the Supreme Court in particular is to resolve disputes, live disputes between individuals who are harmed as a result of uh, disagreement about what the law means. They can resolve those cases. They can't issue advisory opinions. They don't make policy. They don't just decide what's a good idea. They can just resolve disputes when two or more people come before them and say, hey, we've got a problem and we disagree as to what the law says. Help us figure it out. That's all they do. Significantly, the, the, the Constitution doesn't specify the number of justices that will serve on the Supreme Court. It contemplates that there will be uh, a chief justice and, uh, and other justices, but leaves the size of the court up to Congress. We, we've had a number of different configurations on the court. We've had it at five, at four, at six, at seven. 
It got briefly as high as 10, very briefly, went back down to eight after having been at nine shortly, and then ultimately returned to nine. It's been at nine now for about 153 years since 1869. And what I explain in the book is that although that number, the number nine, wasn't carved uh, onto stone tablets and handed uh, uh, down from a mountain, uh, it's not ordained or required by the Constitution. It is nonetheless something that works. And in order to preserve the constitutional role of the Supreme Court, and to maintain its uh, legitimacy as a court, we need to stick with the number we've now got. Well, you know, one person who's considered by many a, a great American president, uh, FDR, uh, really tried to change that number. He really wanted to pack the court. What, uh, what occasion to his desire to do that, and, and what was the result? Uh, thanks so much for asking about that. You're exactly right. President Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, is someone I discuss at length in Saving Nine, because the last time, the last time there's been any significant push to pack the Supreme Court, meaning to have Congress enact legislation increasing the number of justices serving on the Supreme Court in order to affect the outcome of cases and the ideological orientation of the court as a whole. Last time that happened in earnest was back in 1937. This, as you may recall, was at the beginning of Franklin D. Roosevelt's second presidential term. During his first term, he was frustrated by the fact that, you know, we were in the middle of the Great Depression. FDR uh, saw the need for a hero, and he saw himself being cast in that role as the hero. He wanted the federal government to be the hero, and he would be the face of the federal government. He wanted the federal government to be able to solve all of Adam's ailments, we might say, all of the problems that were plaguing humanity to a particularly acute degree at that uncomfortable um, poverty-stricken season of our history. And so he started expanding the size, the scope, the reach, and the cost of the federal government, reaching its scope into all sorts of things like labor and manufacturing and agriculture and mining. Remember, the federal government's intended to be a a limited-purpose national government, not a general-purpose one supposed to be in charge of national defense, declaring war, weights and measures, immigration laws, trademarks, copyrights and patents, uh, bankruptcy laws, regulating interstate and foreign commerce or trade. And there are a few others, but that's, that's the lion's share of the power. It's not supposed to be all things to all people. And it wasn't uh, uh, until the New Deal era and FDR started expanding it. So we ran into some roadblocks with that. The Supreme Court consistently uh, invalidated uh, many of these forays where he was trying to to regulate every aspect of human existence, including a whole lot of things like labor, manufacturing, agriculture, mining, health, safety, and welfare things uh, that were outside the scope of uh, the the prerogative of the presidency and of, of the federal government as a whole. He got tired of losing. And so right after he won re-election, he started talking about, uh, so he, he won his re-election in 1936. And then he said, okay, this is now my opportunity to get even. I'm tired of of these clowns telling me no. He was particularly infuriated by four justices, uh, sort of the intellectual leader of which was a guy named George Sutherland, who's from Utah, former U.S. senator, uh, the only Utah ever to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. There's a group of four Supreme Court justices with George Sutherland as sort of their intellectual leader, whom he nicknamed derisively the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, they, they were always the leaders behind an effort to, to, in some cases, bring a unanimous court, in other cases, a five to four or a six to three court to invalidate program after program. He wanted to get back at them and neutralize their effect. So he introduced legislation, giving himself the power to appoint as many as six additional justices, bringing the total size of the court to where it could get as high as 15. That really was the last time that's been undertaken. And as I explained in Saving Nine, that plan, while it never passed through Congress, didn't pass through Congress in part because it succeeded in another way. It succeeded by intimidating uh, certain members of the court to switch their votes. That's why packing the court, even threatening to pack the court, is itself dangerous. It's anti-American. It's not technically unconstitutional. But as I explained in Saving Nine, it's 
anti-constitutional. And particularly when it's it clearly being done in order to provide a political advantage. And yes. the court is supposed to be apolitical uh, and there to interpret the Constitution, which I think is a magnificent document. I personally think it was inspired by God, to be honest with you. As do and, I. You know, when, uh, when Benjamin Franklin was asked, uh, what do we have here after the Constitutional Convention in 1787? a monarchy or a republic. He said, a republic if we can keep it. Well, you know, part of being able to keep it is our system of checks and balances, uh, the way it worked. But uh, another interesting aspect of the Supreme Court and, uh, and the federal court system is the lifetime appointments of judges. Now, when the Constitution was put in place, the average age of death was less than 50. Um, and now it's uh, gone considerably higher than that. Is that a reason to consider maybe a change? Yeah, not in my view, no. Uh, look, the fact that people are living older on average now is a good thing. The fact that we have access to jurists who can serve well into their um, elder years provides us with insight and wisdom. And I, and I say that even with respect to those justices like Justice Ginsburg and, and Justice Breyer, they were still very capable uh, as they got older. Now, it's different if somebody gets to a point where they can't do the job, but they, they were both doing the job. I disagreed with a lot of their jurisprudence. Well, in a, in a way, for instance, we have a president right now whose mental faculties probably are not what they were in the past. For important positions, senators, Supreme Court justices, the president, would we be smart to consider asking them after a certain age to take a mental status test on an annual basis? Yeah, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a bad idea. I mean, it, because if someone's experiencing cognitive decline in a demonstrable uh, objectively verifiable way, uh, it'd be good to know that. And uh, it's not a bad idea. Because they they generally aren't going to recognize it in themselves. Right. And uh, people around them do. So uh, it's a fascinating uh, topic and something that I, I hope will be taken up as the years go on. But, you know, I... I'm wondering a little bit about uh, the fact that the left right now is making a, a big push, uh, and they would if they had the, the votes. They would pack the court. There's no question about it, uh, because they want to arrive at the correct decision. And, of course, the correct decision is the one that they advocate for. Uh, in other words, changing the rules of the game so that they will win. Eventually, if they keep pushing this, do you think they're going to get through it? Or yeah. do, do you think there would be a, a chance of the right wanting to do that also, to enshrine their majority if they ever get it? I mean, how do we get to this place? It's horrible. Yeah, um, great question. I, I, I devote a couple of chapters in Saving Nine to this very topic, uh, to the fact that it's been nice that we've gone a century and a half without any serious effort to pack the court again. People on both sides of the political spectrum have, for most of that time, agreed it was a bad thing. It, 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 it was unseemly. It was uh, just such a bald-faced attempt to do that. Now, and, and, and we think that's a very bad thing. I have um, been firmly of the view and remain firmly of the view that uh, Republicans don't want to pack the court. Even though we, we've had our share of losses in the court system, uh, uh, the courts have, a, over many decades, issued a number of decisions that we strongly disagree with as Republicans and as conservatives. Notwithstanding that, we're able to acknowledge that the, the net gain is to the American people and to the constitutional system by having a fixed number of justices. That's why I support fixing this by a constitutional amendment making constitutional what is now statutory. So I don't think for the time being there is a, a widespread Republican desire to do it. But I do think you're right 
Dr. Carlson. I think it's it's very much uh, something that Democrats want to do. And if there were um, if they did have the votes to nuke the filibuster, and as far as I can tell, there are really only two Democratic senators stopping the nuking of the filibuster, and that's uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Sinema from Arizona. I believe that if the filibuster just woke up, if we woke up one day and discovered that the filibuster had been nuked, I do believe the Democrats would do it. They would do it today. And once that happens, as I explain in, in Saving Not in more detail, once that happens, it, it opens the floodgates. And this is one of the reasons why we all should oppose it, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum, regardless of what we think about Roe and Dobbs or any other Supreme Court uh, line of precedent. It, it's a slippery slope. You open those floodgates. You can't get them close because here's what would happen. If the Democrats did this right now. They're leading proposal. And, and by the way, it only took them uh, hours before they started. Uh, we started seeing the trending hashtag, uh, hashtag expand the court. They, they were actively, a lot of my Democratic colleagues were actively pushing this within hours of when the Dobbs decision was issued a few months ago. But they would do it and their leading proposal would, would add four seats to the court, taking it from nine to 13. The problem there is it wouldn't stop them, even though we've been successful in holding Republicans back because of the slippery slope problem. Once the slippery slope is present, we can't stop it. There would be no stopping Republicans. The next time the two political control of the two political branches, the legislative and executive branches, once it shifted, in other words, once you had a Republican control again, very next time you have Republican control of the House and the Senate and the White House all at the same time. You would see a move to add four more justices, or maybe it would be six or eight. And then the next time it's shifted again and the Democrats were in that position, they'd add more. And so it, before long, it wouldn't look like it. You know, nine is a, you can't get much bigger than that and still have it function as a judicial body. The bigger it gets, the more it starts to look like a political body, the more it starts to behave like this unwieldy mass, like the intergalactic Senate in the Star Wars movies. It doesn't work. When you've got dozens of people on there all at once, it can't function as an independent, dispassionate tribunal. And remember, that is what it is. People people think of the Supreme Court. This is why I devote um, all of, uh, I believe it's chapter one of Saving Nine to explain what the Supreme Court is and what it isn't. I explain this concept of what's a case in controversy and how they resolve it, what their role is, and the fact that they can't just be a roving commission on... Uh, good ideas or even on uh, good constitutional policy or bad precedent that needs to be undone. They have to deal with it only in, in precedent. And I debunk some of the myths, the, some of the common misconceptions about the Supreme Court. People imagine that they're constantly bickering and arguing and that the those appointed by Democrats don't agree with those appointed by Republicans on anything. The truth is, the overwhelming majority of cases, they... Uh, the overwhelming majority of the cases before the Supreme Court are decided either nine to zero or eight to one or seven to two, like the overwhelming majority of the cases. And they don't break down upon uh, party lines according to which president nominated and confirmed them. Uh, it's, it's really the exception uh, where there's something else there. But that would start to change. All of this would start to change. Republicans' lack of desire to pack the court the lack of restraint on the part of justices, the lack of overt political orientation, it would all cease to exist. It sounds like it would be the beginning of the end. Yeah. The beginning of the end. It would unravel the constitutional fabric. Well, I, I sure hope people are paying attention to individuals like you who have some common sense. <laughs> Sometimes we wonder. Uh, we will be right back with uh, Senator Mike Lee. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. 
thatsleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with Common Sense. We have uh, Senator Mike Lee with us today. In his book, he discusses how Hitler and Mussolini overhauled their country's judiciaries before consolidating power. That really should tell us something. And uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken recently said that packing the court is one of the ways that democracies can come undone. And Hugo Chavez added 12 judges to the Venezuelan High Court, which then ruled in his favor in over 45,000 cases. I mean, it's pretty clear what happens when you make the court this political. Uh, the president of El Salvador illegally fired members of the Salvadorian High Court, which then changed the constitution to permit him to uh, run again. And uh, even candidate Joe Biden said that it was a boneheaded idea back to court. Isn't it interesting how ideas change over the course of time? But uh, looking ahead to this session, what are some of the cases you think we should be watching out for? Yeah, one of the cases that's going to get a lot of attention and are already getting some, it deals with uh, the proper interpretation and application of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It's a dispute in the state of Alabama about a court order that would have required Alabama to redo its redistricting plan. They redistricted, as every state has to, following uh, the decennial census uh, in 2020. And uh, there was a lower court, a federal district court, that had ordered um, the state to redraw the boundaries. And um, the state of Alabama challenged that, saying that what the plaintiffs in that case wanted them to do was obsess over race and make an overtly race-centric decision, race-driven decision uh, in doing that, and that that would, among other problems, run up against the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Oral argument was heard in that case, I believe, yesterday, and uh, listen to some of the uh, argument. That's going to be a hot one. I know there are other issues coming, coming forward that will be significant. I think some of those uh, will involve things like um, the delegation of lawmaking authority. Remember the West Virginia versus EPA case that was decided by the court in June. Uh, It invoked the so-called major questions doctrine uh, and basically said, when Congress hands over something like this, we're not going to assume that Congress uh, subtly or implicitly handed over authority to an executive branch agency, to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. I think we're, we're likely to see some more action on that front. You know, it's, a, it's probably going to uh, be big news also about what Harvard and uh, University of North Carolina are doing with race-based uh, admissions policies. Yes, where the Supreme Court's going to have an, an occasion to revisit the issues uh, previously addressed in the Gratz case and the Grutter case uh, 15 or 20 years ago and um, address some of these standards uh, where you look at an, at an entity that's engaging in racial discrimination. Well, so many things, th- so many things these days seem to come back to the issue of race. And, you know, it does evoke a lot of sympathy on behalf of the population, so it can be an emotional issue. But, uh, you know, I remember years ago, you know, how much rancor there was around affirmative action. And I actually wrote an op-ed for the uh, Wall Street Journal, which they published, on what I call compassionate action. 
They say, you know, we've always been a very compassionate group of people, uh, and we've always wanted to give a, a hand to the underdog. But who's the underdog? That should not be determined by race. That should be determined by circumstances. Right. And, uh, you know, if I use as an example, if there's a, a young man from Appalachia whose father got killed in the coal mines, he's been working for the last 12 years to help support his family, has a 3.9 grade point average and 1,500 SATs. Why should, you know, my son, who has had nothing but privilege all of his life, never had any financial issues, be given preference because of the color of their skin over that young person? Instead, we ought to look at the circumstances from which they emanate. And, uh, you know, that will have nothing to do with one's race. And it may change from group to group over the course of time, depending on what's going on. But it's flexible and it uh, allows us to actually be fair. But uh, I, th I think there's going to be another case uh, similar to the, um, the Masterpiece uh, Cave Shop case coming up on another business in Colorado. And uh, that tends to be a very emotional issue, too. But to me, it seems like the difference with the cake maker, the cake maker would gladly sell anything in the store to anybody who comes in. He's not discriminating in that way. But can you actually make him do something that is against his principles? Make him make a cake that he doesn't want to make. To me, that's a very different issue than selling things to anybody who comes in the store. No, that's right. Especially because that, that's where you get into, uh, in addition to the free exercise implications there, you, you also end up with a hybrid right, overlapping constitutional rights, where you're asking someone to engage in speech in which they don't want to engage. The compelled speech doctrine is a pretty significant thing. It, you're extremely unusual that it's ever appropriate for the government to be in a position to force someone to utter words that they choose not to utter. Right. Uh, it's uh, subjected to strict scrutiny. So yeah, these are significant issues. And uh, especially whereas here you're, you're looking at situations in which people are asking, they're not telling entire swaths of the public, we won't do business with you at all. There are certain overt acts in which they would become de facto participants and speakers that they, they don't want to. That's a pretty serious set of, of constitutional implications that are, that are brought about there. If you really are going to say, yeah, you could go somewhere else, but you want this person, this business to be engaged in speaking a message that they disagree with uh, for religious or other reasons. That's a that's a pretty significant issue. Yeah, that's a big jump and a big change from who we've been as a nation for a long period of time. And I, and I hope people will stop and think about that. Uh, we will be right back with uh, Senator Mike Lee. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with Common Sense. We have uh, Senator Mike Lee with us today. You know, one of the things that I discovered when I was running for president, uh, you could go to the smallest little hamlets and 
in Alabama or North Dakota. It didn't matter the biggest city. Most people have common sense. Maybe not as much so in Washington, but you know, in the rest of the country, most people have common sense. And I think if you presented things to them in an objective way, things that represent our democratic republic and our way of doing things versus the socialist way, there would be an overwhelming decision to go with our way. But the other side, the left in particular, has discovered how to disguise what they're doing. And they've co-opted the media to help them with that message. And uh, it's hard for me to even understand how the media could be so easily co-opted because it seems to me like they should know something about history. And uh, history tells us that when socialists and communist regimes take power, the first thing they do is completely control the media. So, you know, they're kind of uh, working against their own interests. And I hope at some point they come to realize that. But uh, switching gears a little, I want to talk to you about an issue of great concern to a lot of people these days, and that is the ever-expanding administrative state. You know, what do you think about the growth of the administrative state, and is it counter to our system of checks and balances? I'm extremely concerned about the growth of the administrative state. Uh, precisely because it is it's not only inconsistent with, it's, it's utterly incompatible with our system of checks and balances. It, it goes against the most fundamental principles of the Constitution. It's important to remember, uh, Dr. Carson, that, that the, the very first operative clause of the Constitution, the first clause of the first section of the first article, Article 1, Section 1, Clause 1, says, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. Legislative powers are the power to make law. In other words, in order to make a law that is federal in the United States of America, it must be made a law by Congress. Article 1, Section 7 goes on to explain exactly how you make a law in our federal system. It's not just that Congress is the only entity that can do it. It's that it has to be done in a certain way. And it says that uh, in Article 1, Section 7, that uh, you've got to have passage of the same proposed law, the same bill the same exact words, by the House and by the Senate. And then once it's passed, once you've secured the bicameral uh, passage requirement, it's, it's then submitted to the president for signature, acquiescence, or veto. Without following that process through to its logical conclusion, you cannot make a federal law. Over the last 85 years, and I actually talk about this in Saving Nine, by the way, uh, because it's it's relevant to... Uh, the in, immense harm that President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, by the way, is the role model and the icon, uh, uh, the, the, the idol of our current president, Joe Biden. Since his administration, we've seen houses of representatives and senates and White Houses, tragically of every conceivable partisan combination, that have contributed to this drift away from that process. FDR started it. And he started it, oddly enough, with his court packing plan, which, while it failed, it scared enough of the justices enough that um, he was able to, to set this all in motion. What has happened since then is we've irrigated all this power to Washington, D.C. that was previously supposed to be state power. When that happened, Congress started to choke on it, meaning members of Congress started to panic because all of a sudden they were going to be accountable for all the additional laws they'd be passing because no longer were they just focused on Trademarks, copyrights, patents, weights, measures, bankruptcy laws, immigration laws, interstate and foreign trade, and declaring war and defense and things like that. They were now in charge of health, safety, welfare, uh, labor, agriculture, manufacturing, mining, all of, all of these things, housing. All, all of these things were subject now to federal control. Members of Congress didn't want to be on the hook for all that stuff because every time you pass a law, you make some people happy and you make others very angry. So in order to accommodate this, Congress started passing laws that weren't really laws. They were more like platitudes, saying things like, eh, we shall have safe workplaces. 
And we hereby just took several decades to culminate into this particular manifestation, but, it, but it's been in motion uh, since uh, 1937. Uh, we shall have safe workplaces in America, and we hereby delegate to OSHA the power to decide what a safe workplace is and the power to decide how to punish unsafe workplaces. So that's where, how we end up with um, OSHA last year coming out with uh, what, what is tantamount to a law that says if you have 90, more than 99 employees, for every employee who goes unvaccinated for COVID-19, we're going to fine you, the employer, $15,000 per employee who's unvaccinated per day, every day, until you remedy the situation by either firing the person or forcing the vaccination. Now, Congress would never have enacted that. Not even, I don't even think most Democrats would have voted for that. But OSHA was able to do it with delegated power. And so this is where the administrative state comes in. We now have, if you measure it by weight, volume, economic impact, but especially word length and, uh, and compliance cost, most of our laws are no longer made by men and women of our own choosing. They're no longer made by Congress at all. They're made by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats like people at OSHA, who once they're put in place, you can't really fire them. And that's a tragedy because it's the, it's the cornerstone of the Constitution that we separate out this power. The power to make law is very different than the power to enforce it. Charles de Montesquieu, one of the most prominent and influential on the founding generation uh, among political philosophers, explained that when you combine the legislative power with the power to enforce law, it's not just that that can lead to tyranny. That is tyranny. It is the definition of tyranny when those two things are fused together. Now these people have the power to make law. They have the power to enforce them. And it's tragic. It's got to stop. It's, uh, both parties have contributed to it. FDR started it, but both parties have contributed to it ever since. And it's got to stop. The best way to stop it, by the way, I mean, it would take several steps. But if I had one shot, if a genie appeared to me tomorrow and said, you can pass any bill that is currently introduced and pending before the Congress. Uh, and this one's not even my bill, uh, but it's a bill on which I've been uh, the leading outspoken ad advocate in the Senate. It's called the RAINS Act. It stands for Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny. And it says that anytime there's a new major rule, that is one that's economically significant and imposes actual burdens on the American public, so that it's not just deciding what time the lights go on and off in an agency, that that new major rule is not self-executing and would have to be enacted into law by Congress, treated as a proposal, fast-tracked for an up or down vote by Congress, and then submitted to the president for signature veto or acquiescence. If we pass the RAINS Act, we'd still have the benefits of the expertise, the knowledge, the research of these administrative agencies, but you'd have Congress serving as the ultimate backstop, the ultimate decider of whether those things are going to become law. Wow. You said a mouthful there. You know, John Adams said that our Constitution was designed for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. When we have any other, what are our alternatives? When we have an FBI that says, I'm going to raid this group of people, but the other group that does exactly the same thing, I'm not going to go. What recourse do we have against that kind of thing? The, the recourse that you have as a citizen can often include the courts. You can, you can go to court. You, you can seek to redress wrongs insofar as you've been harmed directly in a concrete, particularized way. That, of course, is time consuming and expensive. And in many cases, uh, it's got to be the right person bringing it. Not everybody is entitled to bring suit unless they are immediately, directly, uh, particularly uh, afflicted by it. Short of court action, the ultimate recourse the American people have is at the ballot box. We do allow our, uh, you know, we, we force a system in which all of our representatives, every member of the House of Representatives, is up for re-election every two years. And one third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years. Uh, I, I'm up this year. And so if you want different policies, You've always got the option of electing different people. 
one of the problems that we've had is that this issue hasn't gotten enough attention. We haven't gotten enough attention in the American population to to make this as full, uh, into a full blown campaign issue to where we talk about the problems inherent in the excessive accumulation of power in the hands of the few. When you arrogate that much power to Washington, D.C., it's going to produce a number of scary outcomes, including those that you just mentioned, including uh, things like um, more and more law enforcement power being exercised by federal officials rather than state officials. Now, the FBI, great law enforcement agency. I'm a former federal prosecutor. FBI, most FBI agents are awesome. And uh, they're patriots. They're not politically motivated or anything. And, And I think that is the overwhelming norm especially in the field offices. Most of the problems that we've had within that particular agency, the FBI, most of them that I've seen at least, have been at headquarters. Why do we need so many at headquarters? Why do we need so much of our, uh, of our law enforcement in this country to be federal at all? And so one of the best ways to deal with that is to say, let's, um, let's right-size the federal government generally, and let's streamline the headquarters of these agencies, including at FBI. You have a shot at doing that when you change who you vote for. You look for candidates who are wanting to acknowledge the fact that it is untenable financially, politically, socially, in almost every way. It's untenable to have a national government in a country as large, as diverse, uh, as uh, geographically uh, distinct as so many of our states and regions are, there's no reason why we have to be deciding every hot button policy issue at the national level. And that, that actually has everything to do with why we end up with runaway agencies, including runaway agents at, at FBI headquarters on some occasions. You, you can point to runaway uh, bureaucrats at, at most agencies, including those who uh, put together that vaccination uh, mandate at OSHA. The best way to handle that is to shrink it down to size. You know, James Madison wrote in Federalist number 62, I believe, it will be a little of little avail to the American people that their laws be written by men of their own choosing. If those laws, I'm paraphrasing now, be so voluminous and complex that they can't reasonably be read and understood by those subject to them, such that they can know what the law is today and what it will be tomorrow. Exactly. We're seeing that now where the Code of Federal Regulations and the Federal Register are constantly coming out with new regulations the American people are subject to. Not only are they so voluminous and complex, we're talking 100,000 pages of new regulatory text issued every year. But they're not even written by men and women of our own choosing. That's wrong. Well, I thank you for bringing that up because that's such an important point. I hope people were listening carefully. And, uh, you know, when it comes to voting... It's a real responsibility. It's a real privilege and it's a real responsibility. And you can't just go in the booth and look for the name that looks familiar, which is what so many people do. We ask our children when they're doing a term paper to do their research. This is every bit as important as any research paper they're doing. Do your research and we will be able to get back to a nation that we all love and enjoy. Senator, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your contributions, not only to the people of Utah, but to the people of the United States. Uh, You were one of my favorite people to work with when I was at HUD. You're just such a reasonable person. And uh, please continue to to work on behalf of the people. Please don't retire. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much, Mr. Secretary. I I really appreciate it. Thanks for letting me come on your show. And and I I love what you uh, said there at the end about the fact that uh, we got to do our research when you're voting for candidates, congressional candidates, presidential candidates, Senate candidates. Ask them what they think the limits are on federal power. And if they can't give you a, a narrow, confined list of what the federal government should be doing, don't vote for them. Ask them what they think of the administrative state unless they can tell you what they're going to do to disempower unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats and re- re-empower the people's elected lawmakers. Don't vote for them. Thank you so much for being here. We'll be back in one moment to answer one of your questions and with our prescription for the week. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. with common sense. Well, the system of checks and balances is integral to our Constitution. You know, it limits the, the power of any of the three branches, and it encourages them to work together. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful to uh, Senator Lee for uh, giving us cogent and understandable explanations of what's going on with our government today. But, um, what we're seeing today are attempts to, to overhaul the system in order to achieve uh, political outcomes. And the framers really wanted to avoid that. They wanted to ensure that we didn't wind up with a king and his parliament. And it's going to take all of us to be attentive. It, it can't be business as usual. We've got to be very vigilant in the way that we vote, the way that we voice our opinions. And that brings me to our common sense prescription for this week. You know, uh, last year at the American Cornerstone Institute, we put out the Read the Constitution Challenge. It's not a very long document, but it's really full of incredible wisdom. And in that challenge, we, we asked you to send back questions uh, that you wanted us to answer. And I want you to read through the Constitution as, as your challenge this week, particularly Article 3. Article 3 uh, establishes the judiciary system in our country. And think about what you heard today on this program. And, you know, if you're having questions about something, don't take someone else's word for it. Go and read it for yourself. It's readily available. You can read it on our website, AmericanCornerstone.org. It's all there for you. And um, now let's have a question from one of our listeners from Sandy and Lubbock, Texas, home of Texas Tech University and Spankies and a bunch of other things. She says, Dear Dr. Carson, my daughter is learning about the Constitution and asked me, if all men are created equal, how come so many of them own slaves? I love our country and believe we still live in the best country on earth, but how do I explain to her that inconsistency in our history in a way that doesn't sound hypocritical? She's in the eighth grade. Well, Sandy, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it comes up quite often. You know, one of the things you can tell her is that slavery was not something that was unique to the United States. Uh, since there's been written history, there's been accounts of slavery in virtually every society. It's very problematic. So having slavery did not make the United States unique. What was unique is that we had so many people who were vehemently and adamantly opposed to slavery that we fought a civil war, a bloody civil war, and lost a large portion of our population to get rid of the evil institution. 
And that's what needs to be emphasized to your daughter. Not everybody went along with slavery. <laughs> a lot of people did not go along with it. And uh, they read our Constitution the way it should be read. And, and that's what we should be thinking about. And we should learn from all the things that have happened in the past and uh, move forward from there. Now, I will tell you that when slaves first came from Africa, there were a lot of slave owners here who saw them more as related to animals than to people. It became very difficult for them to think that, however, once the slaves learned to speak English. And once they learned to express themselves, in many cases, very eloquently, then that sense of rationalization was attacked and many people changed their minds. So we were not perfect as a nation because we were composed of imperfect people. Uh, but we got to the right place and we will continue to evolve in a positive way. So, Sandy, thanks for your question. And I'd like to hear from the rest of you. Email your questions to ben at americancornerstone.org. And we'll try to answer at least one question on each show going forward. Make sure you make the questions short and put podcast in the subject line. And please subscribe for free to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Uh, rate us. Review us, tell your friends about us, because we have got to bring common sense back to our country. It's vital to our survival. Until next week, be well and treasure the cornerstones, faith, liberty, community, and life. See you next week.